Well, we're continuing this series. We're starting Advent early. We're like Hobby Lobby with Christmas. We're jumping into the Beatitudes, and this is actually, yes, this is a continuation of Exodus, because here is Jesus, the authoritative teacher. He takes the seat at the mountain to properly interpret for us the true law of God. And he begins with these blessings that are not earned, but as we heard last week, stated well, these are received. They're not beatitudes like, you know, get yourself right and try harder and have the right attitude and be happy all the time. They are the blessed life that is received by those who trust in Christ, who are now living, now and not yet, but living in the realities of God's kingdom. Blessed, happy, truly, deeply joyful are those who mourn? Hmm. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In a now famous blog post turned book, Bronnie Ware, who worked for many years as a bedside nurse in palliative care, being with patients, many patients, as they took their last breath, Bronnie Ware recalls the top five regrets of the dying. In all her years of experience, the top five regrets of the dying, what did they mourn? What did they mourn? First and most common, patients often said, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. And for Christians, here's what that means. And it can really only mean this. Free in the love of God. Truly free in the love of God. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others, the world, the flesh, the devil, and everybody else expected of me. According to Bronnie, this was by far the most common regret of the dying. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. She found this to be especially true in her context for men in that generation, most of whom had been breadwinners and working outside the home and regretted all of the rat race that they spent not with their wife and their children. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express how I was really feeling. To be true to myself and in relationship to others about what I was really thinking and feeling. For I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Good friends are really hard to find, and as you hit life and middle age and mortgages and all the things, even harder to maintain. But it underscores the importance of relationships. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And lastly, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Isn't this the thing that everyone around us is searching for? Happiness. Pleasure, power, fun, comfort, take a hike, see a sunset. These are all good things, but they're not ultimate things. They're all good things, but only God is the thing. And so Jesus is starting off this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with you know, this list of what it means to be truly in the blessed good life of the kingdom of God by faith in him as the Savior and the Messiah of God's people. 
It's interesting not only to note what they did regret and mourn, but what they didn't. Not a single person, she said, on their deathbed was talking about if they'd only had more money. If they'd only had more likes on that Facebook post that almost went viral. If they just had more people care about what they ate for lunch because they posted it on Instagram. You know, if they'd just gone to school and gotten more degrees, they could have more laud and honor and accolade and, and be seen greater in the eyes of others. No, what they mourned was less than the beautiful good life that God promised our first parents in the garden. And as C.S. Lewis says, we have a whisper of that reality in our souls. That's what we're longing to get back to. Relationship with God and in God who we really are and in who we really are, honesty and relationship with our neighbor. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, shall be, Comforted. There's much to mourn in the world, isn't there? There's much to mourn. Much of it is out there. Uh, Pick the news story du jour that's in your craw. Perhaps you are mourning or having grief about that particular injustice. This week, what came to mind for me was our brothers and sisters. Indeed, closer family to us than people who look and act and whatever like us but don't know Jesus in Cuba. And hearing the reports in our global missions committee about the hunger and the need. And, you know, what do you do when you hear it? You're like, I want to do something about it. And what's even harder is to hear, but you really can't because you can't get food in there right now. And there isn't enough food or water. Oh, the list goes on of things to mourn out there. But what about in here? What about the work that God wants to do on us with his word, his scalpel, his two-edged sword? What about you? What do you mourn? What do you grieve? What do you need to mourn or grieve? I was just looking around this room as we were worshiping, and it's so good to see a few of you I haven't seen in a while. And I just, I love you guys, man. I love this church. I love our family. God has really, he's blessed us with a great group. At least nine out of 10. Bad joke. At least one out of two pastors. Um, But I know in a group this size, without a shadow of a doubt, that there is real grief and there is real mourning in this room this morning. Some griefs long past that still come to mind almost out of nowhere. Perhaps you've experienced deep loss in your life, the loss of a friend or a loved one or pain or brokenness in relationships, even in your own family. Maybe it's just the constant low-grade hum of the brokenness of the world and the reality of the pandemic. There is much to mourn. And what makes this challenging, two things. Number one, our world kind of really stinks at grieving well. Our world is pretty bad at mourning. And so what happens because of the flesh, unwilling to submit to the reality of the kingdom at the cross of Christ, you get two extremes. One extreme, of course, the one I relate to being the... uh, glorious millennial I am is, you know, just kind of the emo victim extreme. Like, I'm going to tell you everything I'm thinking and feeling and grieving at any moment. Because what I feel is the truth, and you really need to know the truth about all my feelings right now. But the other extreme, as one author put it this week, 
Not the, you know, emotional victim constantly churning and wearing your heart on your sleeve, but something else that I think often we're guilty of in 21st century individualistic, materialistic John Wayne America is this, toxic positivity, success, work hard, get your life together, cross your arms, feather in your cap, check your boxes, family good, life good, marriage good, work good, church, went there, did that, boom, everything's great. Now, is it wrong to be happy? Of course not. Is it wrong if you're here and you're someone who deals a little bit more with melancholy? That's not necessarily wrong either. Paul says that some are given more faith, some are given less. We weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. What's wrong is thinking that mourning is either a self-serving divulgence of all of my feelings all the time, or I can't mourn, I just gotta look good. I need to succeed. I need to win. Toxic positivity. Both of these lack the abiding comfort that Jesus is promising us here in verse four. And yet as we consider the way that we oscillate like a pendulum between these extremes, we should be honest about the fact that mourning is hard. It's scary to grieve. It's scary to really grieve because it it uproots things that are deep in us, things that we realize quickly we actually can't control. It's scary to be exposed. This is the indwelling nature of the sin we inherit from our first parents who sinned against God, and now they are naked and ashamed. They are exposed, as it were, and they are guilty And we worry that if we say too much or grieve too much or mourn too much or if we're too honest or too real, what might happen? And so what do we do? We learn, and sadly it's learned from a young age to really hold it down. You know, boys don't cry kind of thing. You hold it down, you push it down, but don't we know Don't we know the sad result of that? Because you're not the Christ, you're finite, you're human, and eventually with enough compression, you'll have combustion. Can't be done. Or as David puts it in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Holding it down and pushing it down literally had physical effects on his body. Many of us know and have experienced this truth. Like a beautiful rose. You know, we, we come into this world as, as children, not, not free of sin, still in a sin nature, but so honest. You know, kids need to grieve, they grieve. When they're hurt, they cry. When they, you know, when they're happy, you know it. And when they're not, you know that too. And as we grow up into adulthood, it seems like a process of wilting, petals falling off a winter. Well, that all seems kind of sad. Jesus and Matthew, thank you very much. So what has mourning to do with blessing? That's what I think Jesus wants us to explore this morning from his word. What has good, godly sorrow and mourning have to do with blessed are those who do this? They are living in the reality of the kingdom. They are experiencing the fullness of the promise of God's comfort. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew that kingdom blessing and comfort are received here in honest grief and mourning for our sin and the brokenness of the world. Now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. Before that, Jesus is out doing some amazing stuff. He's healing people. 
In fact, Matthew tells us he's healing people of every kind of disease. Could this be the guy? Could this be the one? Is he maybe the Messiah? He's speaking with authority. He's proclaiming the word of God. That would be sort of the narrative acts of the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't leave us to interpret those things on our own. He now gives us the discourse of the kingdom. He wants to help us understand the reality of the kingdom, since we are so good at making them for ourselves. And what this, uh, not parable, what this beatitude shows us is that we have two deep needs when it comes to, to being before God and one another in the reality of the kingdom. The first is that we need real blessing. Not just temporary happiness, not just hits of dopamine, not just feeling for a moment that you have everything under control and everybody likes you and isn't that good, but true, real, deep, anchored and abiding blessing. So it's good to just stop for a moment and ask, what does this word bless really mean? And we'll be covering this every week, but you know, we've got eight weeks here of blessed are. One scholar puts it this way, the word blessed might be better translated as happy, truly happy, deeply happy in the Lord. And yet we lack an English word that is properly analogous for the pregnancy of meaning found in blessed. It is deep joy and deep peace. It is rested trust. It's more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. Instead, by faith, it is a state of well-being in relationship to God, to those whom Christ clings to. Blessed are those who mourn. We need real blessing. And we need real comfort. We need the comfort of God. Because we know full well that this world makes a lot of comfort promises and is bad at keeping them. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way in the first question. I just, I love it. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And for, you know, friends and folks who come to church and maybe they're not yet Christians or they're exploring or they're wrestling, they're doubting, they got big questions. Good. Be here and ask those questions. Let's hang out. Let's talk. I love those questions. But th this really gets to the heart of it. What is your only comfort in life and in death when everything's stripped away? And the Heidelberg Catechism begins with this beautiful answer, that I am not my own. I don't need to conjure up my own blessing and my own comfort. I don't need to do it on my own. I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So wherever the world fails at blessing and comfort, and can't possibly understand proper mourning. This we know, that whatever it means to do this well, it means to do it, you know, under the shadow of the wing of the faithfulness of Jesus. This is what Israel was longing for. I know it's easy when we watch the news to think things are worse right now than they've ever been. Spoiler alert, they're not. There's good and there's bad. There's wheat and there's tares. There's injustice and there's the kingdom advancing as it's always been from the creation of the world. And so the Jews who were there and gathered these great crowds listening to Jesus give them this sermon. This is what they longed for. We sang about it. Holy manna. Lord, send your Messiah. Send the Savior. Send the Savior to help and really deal with the brokenness of this world because we can't do it. 
We can't fix ourselves. You can almost feel God's people channeling Isaiah chapter 40. Lord, when will you answer the prayer? Comfort, comfort my people. We need that comfort. We need that blessing. And many scholars agree that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted has a parallel in the Old Testament later in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, where he is envisioning the fullness of the blessing of the kingdom come. And he says, instead of sin, white as snow and beauty for ashes, a garment of praise and a headdress of glory in place of sin where it is ravaged. This is what we need. Real blessing, real comfort. And the text, I believe, shows us that it's ours in three ways. First, Jesus invites us to mourn well. Secondly, he shows us the way. And thirdly, um, it, it's a command, but it's, it's the best command. It's the best promise. Receive his comfort. An invitation to mourn well, the way of mourning well, and receiving his comfort. Jesus invites us to mourn well as those whose rest and hope is in the finished work of Christ. This week, I was reminded of a story of my friend Jim. Uh, Jim is a, a friend of mine, 20 years older than me. He is a, a, a Christian, a, a pastor, and a, a counselor, licensed counselor in Dallas, Texas. Jim has a pretty wild story, and he struggled deeply with sin, with life, with addiction, with issues regarding his own sexuality. He's made these things public in some beautiful gospel articles, which I'd be happy to send you. But he tells his testimony of one night when he had come to a place of such despair, such hopelessness, that he was, he was done. He was ready for the end. And so he found himself that evening in his bathroom, uh, writing out his note to his family while his two sons slept in the other room, and his wife was away at a conference, and he said these words. He said, I cannot fake it any longer. My grief, my pain, it's all too much. I can no longer continue to live the lie. In God's mercy and providence, his wife actually came back early from that conference, and she found him right then and there that evening in that bathroom, pen in hand, and the tools of destruction sitting right next to him. Of course, they were both stunned and shocked. It was as if God had come himself into the room. They began to talk. And as they did, she told him, his loving wife, she confronted him and said, look, I have made a list at this conference. She was at a conference on grief. I have made a list of 40 things that you've never grieved in your entire life. 40 things that you've held down. 40 things that, that, that growing up, that little boy, little girl went through, was pained by, hurt by, and you've never grieved them. At first he responded to her, well, I don't want to grieve them again. <laughs> I've already lived through those painful things. I don't want to drudge them up. But even as he was telling her that he didn't have the strength to mourn that brokenness, he recounts in his own story that he heard a voice. He felt an impression. It was almost an audible voice 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, Jesus doesn't look at your grief and your, your pain and the things that need to be mourned and, and reject you and wag his finger and shame you, much less heap upon you rules and regulations and work to be done. Jesus invites you to mourn well. So what does that mean? Well, it might be good to at least consider some things that mourning is not. You know, it's not necessarily that we mourn and then we get our way about things. Mourning doesn't mean that I, you know, go around expecting that God's going to do what I want to do and not deal with my mismanaged expectations. Mourning isn't a crystal ball that somehow instantly, you know, changes my life and I do it once and we're done. No, as one scholar puts it, the context here in Matthew is that those who mourn don't just do so, uh, you know, over little things or arbitrary things, but primarily they are mourning over sin and evil especially their own, and humanity's inability to properly glorify God. A holy sadness that things are not the way they should be in me, in you, and in the world. So as we heard last week about being poor in spirit, a prerequisite of experiencing the kingdom of God, of entering that kingdom by faith through the finished work of Jesus, is coming to the end of yourself. It's being honest and saying, man, you, you think that's bad, that's worthy of mourning? Well, you don't even know the half of it. Man, if you could see a TV over my head that showed you everything that I thought, everything that was going through my mind at all times, you would know just how much I have to mourn. So to mourn then isn't some, you know, self-referencing act of venting and self-expression. It's to put the world itself and our place in the world in proper perspective while simultaneously longing for heaven. And in that, knowing that there's only one person who can get us there, and he's not in the mirror. Why should we mourn? Well, what we mourn reveals what we most truly love. What we mourn reveals our loves, our truest affections. Sometimes, by God's grace, we, we mourn our sin, and the Lord reminds us that he... He's at the center of our loves. Often, I, I'm mourning things that, that, that are so much less than that. And so godly sorrow and mourning is a way to reveal our false gods and idols. To that I say, ouch, but thank you. As I often say to Jesus, ouch, but thank you. Thank you for being the great physician and a good surgeon and, and your kindness and your grace leading me to repent, to turn away from the empty, broken cisterns and the wells that are dry and turn to Christ. Jesus invites us to mourn so that we can get past what everybody else sees on the outside and what we work so hard to keep down. Jesus wants us to get to the root, to our affections, to our loves, to our soul, to our heart. To who's on the throne, really? And perhaps that's why the prophet Joel in chapter 2 prophetically rebukes the people of God and says, look, you have been very good at being religious. Come to church every Sunday, wear decent clothes, go through all the rules and rites and rituals. You know the motions well. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. In this sense, mourning is a tool to get us to the realities of the gospel, good news for us, not a means of behavior modification. 
The scholar R.T. France then puts it this way in reference to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Far from being abstract philosophical discourse on ethical principles, these Beatitudes are a messianic manifesto, setting out the unique claim to absolute authority of the teacher who controls the destiny of the hearers and wants them all, every part of them, every need, every thought. All of it. Jesus wants it all. And that's why he calls us to mourn. To gracefully and graciously reveal to us those places where we're too scared or too prideful to open our hands. And this is for us, folks. It's for us who are in church. I would remind us that if you're here this morning and your hope and trust is in Jesus Christ, we're not here to get beat up you know, guilt and shame and rules and, you know, that's just modern-day Protestant penitentiaism. You know, come to church here, here, you know, here's some good stuff and then leave and try harder. You might as well just go out, you know, as Paul would say, go all the way and emasculate yourself. Go out and buy the whip and start beating yourself up and down the street. No. No. We're not worms. <laughs> We're not worms. We are, by the grace of God, being renewed day by day in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's taken a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. You're a new creation in Christ now. You're not worms. You're also not angels. Few of you especially. Kidding. You're not worms. You're not angels. And so until heaven, until we're with Christ, until every tear is wiped away and we're in resurrection bodies, we are engaged in the tension of this grace process. Honest, real mourning, letting the word of God do its work so we can avoid both sides of a ditch. As one scholar puts it, the word of God then in our mourning is a two-edged sword. Why? On the one hand, it cuts through the lie of our self-righteousness and pride to show us our need to mourn. On the other hand, it cuts through the abusive lie of our hopelessness to show us that we indeed have help. The word of God helps us avoid two sides of a ditch. It cuts away the lie that we don't need God and can do it on our own, while simultaneously it cuts away the lie that if God were to really see our sadness and grief, he wouldn't love us. Jesus invites us to mourn well, to be fully known and fully loved because all of the demands are met. This is the gospel. If your trust is in Christ, you are free, you are loved. All the expectations, all the demands, all the regrets, it's already done, it's already finished in Jesus himself. And in the invitation to mourn well, he shows us the way. I just want to say two things about this way. The first is that we are to mourn in community. Probably the greatest book in the Bible that helps us mourn well is the book of Psalms. Now, there's nothing wrong with you reading the book of Psalms alone in the morning over your cup of coffee while everybody's still asleep. Praise the Lord, and I'm glad that you do that. But never forget that Psalms, the book, 150 chapters, this is Israel's corporate worship book. And so we are to mourn. We are to mourn in community. God brings us through this process of honest mourning, not as individuals, but as a body, as a family. Why else, again, would God's word say, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice? Well, if you don't know how anyone's doing, 
You can't do that. We are to mourn in community. Because folks, we're not, we were not meant to mourn alone. We know that. It, it's too heavy for you. What you're dealing with, what you're going through, it's too much of a burden. It, it's the lie of the devil to just push it down. That's defeat. That's going back to slavery. That's the meat pots of Egypt. I know it's scary. I know it's scary. But the opposite is too much. It's too heavy. And I just want to say that, that for those who are here this morning and just feel like you've been carrying these burdens for too long, come, you know, come and, and share your heart and your life either with John or I or whoever, community groups, live out your life with people, unburden yourself. That is what makes the church a light on a hill. Which leads me to my second point about the way of godly mourning and holy sorrow in community and in public. Re recently, I, I read an article by Gavin Ortland, who I love, is a theologian, philosopher, guy. And he said, I am convinced that possibly the greatest tool of evangelism for young people in the 21st century in the West will be when Christians who are clinging to the kingdom of God and the realities of the cross are not afraid to mourn and let God's power be made perfect through their weakness. You see, I think the church really needs to repent here of going out into Santa Fe and being like, yeah, we're good. I'm good. You should be more like me. You should be good too. You don't look very good. I'm pretty good. I'm a Christian. You're not. You should be like me. Now, I'm not saying any of us do that in reality, but if we have that posture, that posture of religious self-righteousness, we are literally undermining and undercutting the possibility of sharing the good news, especially with young people in our world. They know the church is full of hypocrites. They know the church as an institution historically has its beauty and its brokenness. They know it's full of normal people just like you and me. So what's the difference? What's the only thing we have? The only thing we have is Christ. His grace, his forgiveness to make us honest, to allow us to be open and, and, and free so that he can, can work through our weakness to show the world true power. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So how do we mourn? We do it in community. You are not alone. And we do it in public because this is the way of sharing the good news of Jesus. This is what sets us apart. If you think being a good person is what sets Christ Church Santa Fe apart, well, let me tell you, there are some other religions out there that do way better at making good people. Because there's way bigger threats and you know, it's, it's a country club and not a hospital. Now, should we pursue goodness and honoring the Lord? Of course. But the only thing that sets us apart, truly, the only thing that sets us apart is what Jesus has already done for us. And so we end just with this charge, receive his comfort. Receive his comfort. The verse says, they shall be comforted. The blessing of godly mourning is the power and the presence of God's own comfort for you. His comfort given to you. Christ for you. God has been faithful. Even if you're not feeling it, even if you're still struggling, even if you keep mourning that same thing for the next 80 years and wrestling with God, 
Christ, for you, it is finished. Because God's great comfort to us is Jesus. It is Jesus. His words, his life, his work. Therefore, godly mourning is synonymous with resting on the finished work of Christ who died for our sins and was raised for glory. You may have five regrets. You may have 50. You may have 500. I think at bottom, a question still lingers for us all. And so I want to end just with a gospel illustration. Just an illustration of the good news of Jesus for us who are mourners, who are sinners, that it's not do better, try harder, be successful, have it all together or the law, but it's grace. Because what if I mourn? What if I'm honest? What if I'm exposed? What if, and God rejects what he sees? There's a story about a pastor that some of you have heard of named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Dallas. And when he was in college, he was ministering to a young lady. You know, he was around 20 years old. She was 26, single mom, uh, had a really difficult past, brokenness, sexual immorality. Uh, when he met her, she was actually in a relationship with a married man. They shared the gospel with her. They took care of her kids. They loved her. They moved toward her. And by God's grace, she came to Jesus. Well, of course, they're in college. So what do you do? You go to some conferences. So they went to a conference. And Matt decided to bring this woman along with him. They found childcare for the kids. And her name was Kim. And they came to the conference. And it just so happened that that preacher was preaching on purity. Purity. Be good. Don't screw up. And as the message began, he pulled out a rose. A rose. And he said, look at this rose. So pure. So beautiful. It's untarnished. You know, it hasn't yet been destroyed and ruined by a bunch of bad decisions. He's really trying to put the fear of God into these high school and college kids. And he said, I want you to take the rose and pass it around. Pass it around while I preach. And then Matt Chandler says he got up and basically preached one of the worst sermons he's ever heard. You know, fear this, fear that, law this, law that. You know, you're going to get syphilis. You're going to die. Everyone's going to hate you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course we should honor God with our bodies. But why? At the end of his sermon, he said, where's the rose? Where's the rose? And at this point, Chandler's head is hung low. He's got this friend next to him, Kim. She's a new Christian. You know, she can't believe what she's hearing. And some kid in the back holds it up. Broken, tattered, barely a single petal left on it. And he says, bring it up to the front. Because if you go out and, you know, make bad decisions, I just want to ask you one question. He holds up the rose. Who would ever want this? Who would ever want this? And Chandler said it was literally everything in his power to not stand up and scream in front of a thousand people. Jesus wants the rose. That's who wants it. In our mourning, in our grief, in our loss, the world says, get a new rose. Religion says, fix the rose. Jesus says, I want the rose. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you invite us into a holy morning. We are undone. Not destroyed, not beat up, 
but in a good and godly way undone, Lord, because we, we have much to mourn. We do mourn the fact that the things we don't want to do, we do, and the things we do want to do seem to be such a struggle, Lord. We, we wrestle with the flesh and the spirit. And yet in all of that, we trust you, that you have made the way for us to come into the life of the kingdom, to live in your blessing, for you have done it. It's a gift, your work to us, and we receive your comfort. Jesus, I thank you that even in our doubts and our struggles, as we come to this table, as the wafer is on our tongue, as the juice is in our mouth, may those be powerful, visceral, physical reminders to us by name as your sons and daughters that you want the rose. Jesus, help us to accept your invitation to mourn, to find you and your blessing in our mourning. And Jesus, by your grace, to receive your comfort. We need it, and we are so thankful that you give it to us for free. In Christ's name, amen.